In today's podcast, we sat down with Christopher Lawrence, Business Development Manager with Teaching Strategies. We're chatting about formative assessment and best practices in early childhood. This is the Early Foundations podcast with your host, Dr. Isela Garcia with the Lessey Group. All right, so let's go ahead and get started. I'm super excited uh, to connect with you and that people have the opportunity to really see how the two worlds come together. Um, our work in Arizona has really been to uh, support best practices in early childhood classrooms, kindergarten through third grade. And one of the conversations that we've had, I think, as a state and what we continue to have in classrooms is that early childhood really runs from birth through third grade or age eight. And um, the understanding of skills beget skills and the necessary foundations, of course, in zero to five, but then what does that look like from kindergarten through third grade? And so this has been kind of our, uh, our, our, I kind of feel like it's been handed to us to try to really kind of bridge the gap of understanding of young children. And then there was the assessment piece that we kept talking about over the last few years. You know, a new assessment's gonna roll out. We don't really know what it's gonna look like. We don't know exactly when it's gonna roll out. But the term formative assessment um, has was, is the big buzzword, not just here in our state, but I think nationally. And what does that really mean? And um, far too often what I've seen in terms of formative assessment is something you do to children as opposed to something that you do with children. And so I was very, very happy um, when uh, the Department of Education, you know, they did the whole vendor and they really sought out um, the assessment that would align best with, um, our, you know, the foundations of early childhood practices. And so with me today, I have Christopher Lawrence from Teaching Strategies Gold. And I would love for you, Chris, to just start off with a little bit about um, you and your background and, um, and then what you do and how, what role you play here in our state with respect to the, the uh, assessment tool. All right. Well, thanks for having me on today because it is definitely an exciting time in Arizona as we finally make that shift to getting closer to what is best practice. Um, prior to joining Teaching Strategies, I was actually a preschool director for two different districts here in Arizona and really got into the depth of what is early childhood and understanding best practice and how to help grow these children. Prior to that, I was in the classroom myself as well as a classroom teacher. Um, and then since I've joined Teaching Strategies, I first took on the role as a professional development consultant where I was able to travel around this country, been in 36 states over the last six years and worked with different entities from a small level program to a state level program and really trying to help inform what is best practice and, and help make a shift take place because there is a shift that has to take place. I think so much of the work that you're doing is causing that to happen, uh, but unfortunately it's on that smaller scale as you and I have spoken about, it's moving those mountains to help this progress happen. Now I'm supporting Arizona in a slightly different capacity uh, through teaching strategies. I am in a sales role, but I'm more as a partner in the field. Um, trying to work with programs, even if they're not interested in purchasing from me, but just to help, again, change their mind a little bit about what we've always been doing because it's not as effective as it should be and start moving to what research says is the most effective practice for working with young children. And I love that you keep emphasizing that early childhood is birth through age eight. 
because so often people forget that first, second, third grade is part of that continuum that we have. Right. And I think that's the lovely part of the tool itself. Um, so uh, several years ago, Arizona adopted the for preschool, the three to five, but I, I believe the tool itself extends from birth to five. Um, and now the under, my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, is really we're looking at the entire continuum of development and quite potentially if a child entered in a um, school or program that utilized the tool, even in the zero to three realm, so a couple of maybe our early Head Start programs use it, and then the child moves into, and, and it could be faith-based if they choose to use the tool, it could be a preschool funded uh, or state funded preschool, or you know that's located in elementary school, but whoever has this tool really could, um, you know, put in some of the, the data that I think is so significant to me as a classroom teacher, because I was able to look at, as a kindergarten teacher, um, not, I, I didn't have an online portfolio or an online assessment process when I was teaching, it was all on paper. Um, but be, to be able to have that passed on and to be able to look into um, the child last year and then the prior year to give some insight to what I'm seeing developmentally. And when we're really looking at the whole child, I think that's such a significant um, need in terms of understanding how to best support that child. Yeah, I mean, you're hitting it right on the head. I mean, GOLD is a portfolio-based assessment tool for that ongoing formative assessment. The benefit of having it electronic is that you have reports and other features that you can really make that data more useful than digging through a, a box that you put all the documents in that you collect in the past. Mm -hmm. And that GOLD also is, just like what you said, truly that birth all the way through third grade. And it was really in response to the field that we needed to expand gold for first, second, third grade, because states were realizing, again, early childhood is birth through third grade. But it is the same tool, regardless if you're working with a six-week-old infant in a childcare setting or in a third grade classroom with a certified teacher. It's the same exact tool. But what we're looking at is moving children along their progression of development and learning. So there is no end product that we're trying to get children to master a certain skill, but more importantly, recognize where they're at today mm -hmm. and where they're at tomorrow so we can keep that ongoing growth. And also if a child comes in with a delay, we're trying to close the gap, not maintain that same distance of how far they are behind today, but get them closer to where their same age peers are at so that they can all be more equally ready for success going forward in the future. So we've had this conversation um, over and over and over again with uh, classroom teachers as we're doing our, the training that we provide across the state. And we really are trying to help administrators and teachers understand what true formative assessment means and why um, the shift in practice is so significant. Um, we've gone into many kindergarten classrooms where the perception of learning is, um, you know, paper, pencil, sitting at a desk in some kindergarten classrooms uh, where children are expected to sit for long periods of time and move from whole group to whole group. So whole group rug to whole group uh, tables and desks. And one of the conversation or the conversation that we continue to have over and over and over again is that it's very, very difficult to really gain an in-depth understanding of who that child is as a learner um, at, in those types of experiences. Are, can you speak to that about 
what what does it look like in practice to implement and utilize the tool? And then how does it inform a teacher who then is helping them move across that continuum of development? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so even if you take some steps back in history from where our company started 30 years ago, we start with creative curriculum. And a big part of the creative curriculum is all about the relationship between teacher and child. And it's really hard to be able to get that individual relationship when it's one versus 20 in those whole group settings. So it's really hard to reach all of them. And then if I even reflect back to my own teachings, I knew I was supposed to individualize for children and reach those outliers, those lower developers and those higher developers. But it always seemed like I kept going back to the middle because I was teaching the whole class. So we're trying to break that apart. And another big part of the creative curriculum is using a lot of choice time so that children can engage in what is interesting to them for those learning experiences. So when gold comes into play as assessment, what we're trying to do is not remove the child from the environment for assessment purposes, but rather meet them where their learning is taking place more naturally, wherever it may be in the classroom, whether it's block center, library area, discovery area, whatever it might be, but we meet them there and focus on what research has identified as the essential knowledge, skills, and behaviors that children must develop and learn for school and life readiness. And those are the skills that we're looking for and building along that progression from where, again, that child is today moving forward to tomorrow. And the last thing I could say about that right now is the CEO of Teaching Strategies said this one piece about gold that just resonates to me to this day, which is that gold is designed to be the invisible assessment. It's supposed to be absolutely invisible to the child. They should have no knowledge that they're being assessed at this time for certain skills. And it should also be nearly invis uh, visible to the teacher as well, because it shouldn't be that thing that they have to stop instruction for to complete for compliance purposes, but rather find those beneficial ways to collect the data that they need to look at to better understand where that child's at their development and then help build on for that in the next learning opportunity that they have. So it, it's definitely a mind shift from what we have because so much in education is trying to stop the instructional process for assessment when really they need to be intertwined together and happening more seamlessly and naturally in the classroom. And what types of experiences do you think, given, given what you know about the tool in itself? So um, there are uh, developmental domains that are kind of the overarching, um, and then each really address um, different parts of a child, I would, I guess, is mm -hmm. the best way to say that. And what does this practice look like? So can you paint a picture of how a teacher might utilize um, the tool, let's say if children are engaged in a block area? And then why is that important? Like why? Because one of our biggest struggles is that there isn't trust that a child is going to learn if they are in a block area. Matter of fact, I just had a conversation with a teacher recently who said, um, she said something to me like they tried to, they tried to make me take a kitchen center <laughs> and I refused. And so this perception is not only from teachers, but many, many administrators who don't see the value in that type of experience for children in terms of building foundations. So how does the tool and those types of experiences, let's say in the block area, really support one another? Yeah, and that's where we have to remember that what we've been doing in education for the last decade or two just isn't right. Uh, the things that came out of No Child Left Behind, putting the rigor into literacy and mathematics, and that's all of our focus. That's all we have to worry about. You know, I've talked to teachers recently where they say they don't even focus on science or social studies right. anymore because yep. just literacy and math, that's all that matters. Absolutely. That's all that matters for. 
But even at that, we're just talking about the academics. We're not even talking about the whole child where we're looking at the social emotional development, the language development, the cognitive development, even the physical development. So if you want to take a look at the area of blocks, we have to understand what is the underlying practice that we're trying to get accomplished within that area. You know, we could easily tie that into mathematical concepts when we're talking about shapes and positional words and other pieces like that, uh, size, length. I mean, there's just so many mathematical concepts, but we also could tie that very easily back to motor skills. We could look at how children are manipulating those blocks. We could ask children questions like, oh, that's such an amazing structure. What are you building at this time? And you're starting to build in that language at that point. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I love most about teaching is when I have the opportunity to sabotage children. And people always think of that as such a negative connotation. But really what I talk about that is in the area of blocks, if you know that you can have four children there, put just enough materials for three so that you have that opportunity to work for those social emotional opportunities and see how children handle it. So they understand how to take turns and recognize the needs of others. So in such a simple area of the classroom, there's so much complexity that takes place at that point if a teacher is able to recognize what can be accomplished at that time and not just see it as wooden blocks that keeps kids busy, but use it as the learning opportunity that it happens to be. I used to do something very similar. I actually, um, I never limited my spaces. And so, you know, where they, a lot of teachers will have like four children can go to this area and three children. And I, you know, if eight kids can figure out how to utilize the space effectively, then eight kids get to use that space. And that was a real important opportunity for me, for them to learn how um, to work through conflict and to say what I need and to be responsive to your needs. And so for me, it was such a valuable opportunity. Um, I wasn't a teacher who wanted, who ran from conflict. It was like, here's a, an opportunity to learn how to do conflict in a way that you see it as, as uh, you know, a foundation for life skills. And I think that leads me to the next piece is far too often, unfortunately, um, our teachers don't have good foundations in early childhood development, just basic child development, understanding what comes first and that, you know, skills beget skills. And then, then the next layer can be built in, in a foundational sort of structure. You know, it's like now I've got those foundations and the next thing can happen and have, I can be very successful at it. And um, it's one of, I think our biggest challenges is just that, you know, in our educational experience, or in our professional development at, at schools, I don't get that kind of um, information. And so one of the things that we talk a lot about is really understanding not only individual children, but child development and the milestones that children typically go through. And this is why I loved the tool as a classroom teacher. Now, you know, I've been in the field for a long time before even teaching creative curriculum, which is what I was born and raised with before Teaching Strategies Gold came out. Um, you know, we use the creative curriculum and in my mind, when the tool actually came out, it helped give me um, a lens to see through. And so when I engaged with children, because I was, I still am one of those on the floor, building with kids, really wanting to get inside their thinking, that it helped me know and understand those developmental progressions, that this is where he is at on the continuum of development, and this is my understanding of what comes next. So what can I do as a classroom teacher? And I think that's the really important shift. Far too often, we the data we collect with other forms of assessment don't really help inform planning and an understanding 
um, of what comes next and how to support the child in, in moving in that direction. Um, so what, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, well, and I think a big part of that is going back to so much of education has been assessing in a summative way. That's always the big picture that we're always thinking about. What are the standards that have to be accomplished by the end of the year? But again, you're talking about a typically developing child with some foundational skills to start with that can work towards that. But there's also often many steps that have to take place in between that. And so many of us got our degrees in education and we took that one or two course set of courses on child development. But this is the thing that I reflect on in the time is that when I took those courses, yeah, I passed them. But it was still pretty abstract to me because I've not had that opportunity to work with children and really link it to something concrete. So, you know, I took something away from it, but I wasn't ever that strong with it in that time. Not until later that I've moved on and got some more concrete knowledge I can link these research and theorists to that made more sense. So that's where, like you said, gold is so powerful. You don't have to try and remember all the sequential steps that children go through for reasoning. The tool right there has it laid out for you for those incremental milestones that a child should go through from birth through third grade. So you don't have to constantly overthink it or beat yourself to death trying to figure out what is that next thing I'm supposed to do. Once you observe a child with a skill, then you can use the assessment tool, figure out where they're at in that progression, place them there. And then the tool tells you what's your next steps. There's, there's no overthinking that has to take place. There's no missteps either. Right. Seeing that back with my, my background is early childhood special education. I had a lot of teachers that wrote really good IEP goals. Then I had some other ones that wrote some really inappropriate IEP goals because they shot too far ahead of the future. You know, we're mm -hmm. talking about three and four-year-olds that sometimes were developmentally like an 18-month-old. We keep thinking this child's supposed to be like a four-year-old by the end of the year. So we're looking at that end step and forgetting that there's three more steps in between. Even taking this in kindergarten, not all children come to kindergarten at the same exact level. So we've got to be able to use some kind of tool to understand those that have had limited life experiences, where they start and where they're at right now and how do we plan forward. And then those children that have come from high quality early childhood programs that are maybe slightly ahead of the curve, how do we continue to support them and grow them and not let them possibly start regressing a little bit or not achieving as much as they should within that one year. So the tool really helps a teacher become more in tune with where each and every student happens to be on their own individual progression and keep supporting that ongoing growth so that every child can achieve as much as possible during that time that they're with them. What do you think is the greatest challenge or shift when um, teachers are beginning to use the tool? Um, yeah, what, 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 do you, what, what do you get from teachers? They really struggle with the idea of how to happen, have it happen during the everyday natural environment. Like, just how do I do the time management piece? How do I continue doing what I'm supposed to do and record the data that I need at that time? And I try to always remind teachers, you don't have to get every child every day. This isn't a race to the end. You don't have to get it all completed by the end of this week. You have time to really reflect on each child and collect the data as you need to with them. So a big shift that teachers have to do is start planning for their observation. We always talk about intentional teaching, planning for your teaching, making sure you're hitting the skills that you need to. The same goes for assessment. You need to have intentional assessment planning opportunities where a teacher can then not be so overwhelmed with the practice, but have intentionality in what they teach, what they observe and assess for, and then use that to help the child go forward. But it really is trying to mesh it into the everyday environment. But what teachers also seem to forget is what they do is good practice in the classroom. 
they do some really high quality things that they just have to take a step back and understand what it is that you're looking for. So you gave the example about the blocks before and we talked about how the social emotional, the language, the cognitive, the mathematics all comes into it. You know, I could even tell a teacher so simply as when you ask a child to go get a piece of paper and a pencil to do some writing at the writing center, you're having that child go through language opportunities where they're following directions and they're going to get the paper and the pencil and they're coming back to the table. You're going to be able to look at how their writing samples are formulated on that paper when they're there, but you can also look at the pencil grip. So instead of just narrowly focusing at one skill at a time, think about all the steps that you have that child go through for that experience and use that as opportunities for assessment. You know, I, when I was a classroom teacher, figuring out, that was a challenge for me too, is figuring out um, how do I ensure that I'm observing every child within each domain? And you know what I found is that at first off, every group of children was different. Mm -hmm. And there, I don't think that there was one single way that I adopted for every group that I had. I don't know why, but one year I had post-it notes everywhere. And the other year I had a notebook that I had put tabs on the side. It was like whatever worked for that particular group of children. And one of the things that I think was most beneficial for me, so my background is working with children in severe crises. And some children exhibit very challenging behaviors coming from those kind of foundational backgrounds. Uh, but then you get kiddos that have had really, you know, horrendous experiences in life, and they're the quiet kids, they're the ones that kind of shut down, the ones who kind of disconnect. And those are the ones that I sometimes would overlook. And one of the beautiful things I think about this type of assessment process is really it keeps me accountable as a classroom teacher because I, I missed, I missed Angela, you know, I, I didn't realize that when I was going through and, and this is key, I think, because I know a lot of preschool teachers, I'm in a lot of preschool classrooms as well, where I see teachers at that end checkpoint date, and they're trying to hurry up and fill in the bubbles and the blanks and all of that stuff. And I'm like, that's not what this is about. This is really about knowing individual children, assessing them ongoing um, within the context of their real experiences. And then that informs you as a teacher. And then you get to see who did you miss and, and how can you incorporate one of the other side things as well. I wasn't um, a very strong, I wasn't very strong at math as a classroom teacher. And um, literacy, I was on point. That was like my thing. We, all my kids knew authors and we were acting stories out. And then when I went to the assessment, I was like, oh, I haven't done any of that. <laughs> I need to do that. And so I think there's so many things that are helpful to a teacher to just create sort of this pathway of, I, you know, ensuring that I'm really connecting with all children and that I am also ensuring that I'm integrating all of the areas of, of development and all the core content um, in ways that are meaningful for children. Do you see teachers say anything about that? Yeah, I mean, you're hitting it right on the head. I mean, very, very much often I speak to people. It's like the kids that you find that you document most are those with the most aware behaviors. Like, the ones that are up in your face, pulling your leg, teacher, teacher, I got something to right. show you. But those children that you could tell one time to go do something and they do it, you never have any data on them because they're not calling your attention to them as often. Right. And then also the other thing that you just talked about, you know, we always, not that we mean to, but we do teach to our preferences, our strengths. So like you gave the perfect example right now. You love literacy, you taught more literacy than you did math because it was more comfortable to you. But we are forgetting that 
all of these skills that we're trying to highlight are all essential. It's again, what gold is based upon is what research has identified as the essential knowledge, skills, and behaviors. We don't put extra things in there. I always call to the teacher's attention, like we don't assess for colors. We don't say that a child has to name 10 colors by the end of the year because it's not the essential skill. Classifying is sorting happens to be where colors could be one of those attributes, but we don't focus on that. We do focus on sorting. We do focus on pattern because that's what research says are skills that we need. So the lovely thing about gold is that if teachers used it the way that it was designed, where you're putting a little bit in each day, a little bit in each week. So when you get to checkpoint, you mm -hmm. should be able to have comprehensive knowledge on all of your students. And we do even have the tool in there that I think that sometimes teachers forget that we have, which is the development and I'm sorry, the documentation status report. So it'll list all of the students on the class roster with every objective and dimension and goal broken down by area. And it shows the quantity of pieces of documentation that's been assigned for each child for each skill. So that a teacher should be able to review that. And I've always encouraged on a weekly basis as mm -hmm. part of the lesson planning. So that when you take a glance at that, you're like, oh shoot, I forgot to assess these five kids on these physical skills. Maybe for this upcoming week, I should plan to assess those kids. So I can figure out where they're at in their progress right now and better support them going forward. So they're not slipping through the cracks so much. Right. So it, it's a shift in practice and being able to utilize the tools. And a lot of teachers are overwhelmed at first because they're not used to having these kinds of tools. And it's more just the compliance piece that they're worried about. The compliance will always be taken care of if you focus on what's most important first, which is the students in front of you today and use the tools that are provided to assist you in that process. But you have echoed so many things that I've heard teachers all across this country talk about, which is, I always seem to have more documentation for these kids. I always seem to have more documentation for these skills. How do I make sure that I get everybody? But once you put the process in place, it'll happen. So um, I want to address the issue, not the issue, but the um, area of documentation, because one of the things that was really developed over time for me personally was how to write a clear, concise anecdotal note and being able to um, collect, even, even collect children's uh, samples of writing. You know, it's like, you don't keep everything, you know, it's it, figuring out what do we keep and even helping children learn at the kindergarten level and the third grade, what can go into my portfolio. Um, all of that, I believe, takes a lot of practice. And I think far too often, unfortunately, having read um, many, uh, gone through and supported preschool teachers in this process, um, because we've had it in preschool for several years now in Arizona, is that sometimes we um, kind of slide in anecdotal notes that aren't, aren't really strong at identifying um, who the child really is and their observations. And so what I mean by that is I see copy, paste, copy, paste, copy, paste, and I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> like for all children. And so one of the things I used to do with my, when I was an administrator, I would have my teachers send me because they also would do this. And you all have great, uh, the ability to do stuff now that we didn't at the time, but I wanted my teachers to write down sort of a uh, summary of the, how children, what their strengths were, the things that they were working on, their observations. And I wanted them to take the name out. So they just made a bogus name up and I had to be able to read it 
and be able to identify which child that was. And that was a re- that's a really important thing for me. I and it's one of those where you know I get triggered when I hear that we're just quickly rushing through things because I feel like it doesn't honor who the child is, and that we're not really best supporting their individual needs um, when we do that. But I think it, it you know it's a it's an art of being able to do this effectively. Yeah. So one of the things that I've been trying to get the shift to take place on is I tell teachers to quit documenting your students. The documentation needs to stop because that's usually when it's pretty generic and it's not very specific. So what I've told teachers to do now is instead of documenting their students, collect evidence of learning because now you're getting more specific through that process that we're talking about of learning who this child is and supporting them going forward. So when you're collecting evidence of learning, you're collecting meaningful and specific information that's relevant to what that teaching process is at that time. Um, I've seen a lot of light bulbs go off in teachers across this country again when I've made that shift. Quit documenting, and they look at me funny because even Arizona Department of Ed requires documentation to be there. And they're like, you know we have to document for the DOE, right? I was like, I do, but quit documenting. Quit scribing down every little detail that takes place throughout the day and get more specific. Collect that evidence of learning that you need. So that's a big, big piece of it that's going to really help people out. Um, yeah, that's just, that's it. I mean, you have to get those significant, significant and meaningful aspects put in there. And the last thing that you were talking about too, is that your note should be clear enough with enough detail that an unfamiliar reader should be able to read it and do something with it. Cause I always give the examples, like what if you were to have to leave your position tomorrow as a classroom teacher and you leave and they hire somebody else to take over, are they going to be able to make sense of all of that evidence that you've collected right now to continue to support your students through the rest of the year? Or is it going to be so generic that it's not beneficial to anybody? And if that's the case, then what's your point? What's your purpose of putting all this time and energy effort into a process that's not going to benefit the students in the classroom or benefit you as the teacher? So we want that that clarity. It doesn't have to be paragraphs and paragraphs worth of information. I even show people how they can easily put evidence of learning in, in a bullet point format because you're just looking for the facts that you're trying to collect as part of the assessment process. Don't, don't put extra stuff in if it's not needed. So I love that. And let me tell you why. Um, evidence of learning is what we talk about when we talk about documentation and um, what the classroom should look like. One of the things that we talk about in our session, Organization of Space and Time, is that this is our classroom. It's not your, your classroom as a classroom teacher. It's our classroom. And what you put on your walls is really should be a reflection of our learning. And it should tell the story of what children are engaged in, interested in, the journey that we've been on, this classroom year. Um, And it's very hard for teachers because they want to put their apples up in in October. And we don't really have apple trees here. (laughs) You know, so we it's a real big struggle for some teachers to let go and to really even give space for children to um, put their own work up without it being very, um, you know, teacher sort of uh, directed. And so this evidence of learning is really not only in the assessment process, but it's also how we tell the story of who we are as a classroom community and how we tell the story to families even. Um, and that, because I think it's, it's, 
for, for when I first got in the field and, you know, we saw more blocks and we saw more uh, creative opportunities in the classroom even. I mean, we don't see easels with paint anymore. We don't see any opportunity for children to truly be creative. And so when, as, and, and back then when we had those experiences, it was really because intuitively we knew that this is what children needed, but then when it all got pushed out, the value and the understanding of the significance of these types of experiences kind of went out the door. And so as we're bringing these, um, the, and now that the research tells us that children need these types of experiences, I think it becomes more, um, it becomes so much more important for us to be able to articulate the goals and the research to administrators, to classroom visitors, to families. And this evidence of learning um, should, I think in our, as we're engaging, we should be able to articulate that. Um, and know it like and I used to say as a classroom teacher and as an administrator everything I do everything I say in this classroom is with intention everything when I walked over to that child and I came down to his level and I responded in a way that ensured he understood what I meant and then helped him move to the next you know area or activity that we were doing that was with full-on intention and so this evidence of learning, I think, is something that we should keep in the forefront of our understanding and reflection as we're trying to work through this process. Yeah, I mean, the simplest way to get the impact of that is think about when parents have picked up their kids at the end of the day and they say, what did you do in school today? Oh, we played or I had lunch. Oh, what did you have for lunch? I don't remember. That's not the way it should be that the day should be so impactful where that child has their own accountability, like you said, for collecting their own evidence of learning, displaying in the classroom, that when a parent asks, the child should be able to say what they did that day. And when, when that control shifts a little bit and we're engaging that child in that responsibility of reflecting on what they've learned, we will eventually get to that level. But it, it's, it's such a hard place for people to get to. I mean, so many times I've talked to teachers about process over product. But the parents want this. Well, tell the parents to stop expecting it because it's not what's going to benefit their child. If we could take that child through that process and develop lifelong skills that are going to continuously be built upon, it's a better thing than being able to have a cute art project that you can hang up on the fridge that looks the same as everybody else's in the classroom. Right. It, yeah. It's a shift. It's a retraining. It, it's going to be re-educating families of what to expect. And here's the reason why it's going to look different. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that... Um, this is an exciting time for um, me and us, I think, in Arizona. And there are teachers who are incredibly excited about this happening because they've been around the block for a little while and they remember. Um, and they're excited that there are initiatives now in our state to really sort of bridge the gap and really have, have a deeper understanding of supporting early brain development. And so, but having said that, sometimes it does feel like um, I'm trying to move mountains or, you know, it just feels like um, trusting, and it comes down to this for me, trusting. It's trusting children. It's trusting teachers. Um you know, the, and I'm just going to kind of do a quick plug for you here about the creative curriculum. There is a kindergarten creative curriculum. Uh, and, it, you know, the creative curriculum is something that I've used my entire 
career as a teacher. And, and I integrated other, you know, uh, ideas and perspectives as well, but that was always at the core. That was the core of the work that I did, um, that I continued to do. And I think that if you really want to take a look at a curriculum, because we're asked this quite a bit, um, which curriculum would you use for this and which curriculum? And, and I honestly can't put my, my name or my support behind any of them because um, it, they, they still are very, what I call, um, they, they lose sight of the child. And, um, and it's unfortunate to me because it doesn't really address the whole child. There's so many pieces that you can bring together, but th there isn't one comprehensive. And I think the creative curriculum, the kindergarten creative curriculum really is a comprehensive approach that aligns really well with the assessment that we have adopted in our state. So um, if anyone is interested in knowing more about the creative curriculum, what do they need to do? Uh, they can definitely reach out to me. I'd be happy to just have a conversation with them, um, bring samples by, explain the different components of it. Um, I mean, I could, my phone number I can give out, whatever <laughs> email address, uh, our website you can go to and search Arizona and you can have my content right there as well. I actually had the opportunity to present to a charter school yesterday on the Creative Freedom for Kindergarten and they have great excitement. And they told me contact these two schools as well because they're also going to be interested in this. But it's definitely that more holistic approach to a whole child, making sure it's not just the literacy and the math, but all the same exact areas for development and learning that Gold is intending to assess for. But giving the children that opportunity to explore and use that inquiry-based learning to get there right. and develop all of the skills necessary to be a successful contributor to society as they go forward. Uh, we really have to quit with that top-down approach, trying to worry about high school graduation is the most important thing. It's extremely important, but we have to remember that we have to build the foundation first to be able to get people to be competent learners through their entire career and be competent people that are contributing to society beyond their educational careers. But yeah, the creative curriculum, um, it's relatively new for kindergarten, for preschool, been around for 30 years now. Mm -hmm. uh, but kindergarten, it's, it's finally there. The, the field has needed it. The field has requested it. We have developed it. And like you said, it's beautifully aligned to the assessment tool. It's targeting the same exact skills. So it's seamless between assessment and instruction and back to assessment again to keep the true formative assessment cycle going. One of the things that I want to mention, um, we worked with Dr. Lillian, uh, not Lillian Katz, with uh, Dr. Judy Harris-Helm, uh, who works with Lillian Katz, on um, the project approach. And one of the things that we have really brought into our opportunities for professional development is this understanding of um, going deeper in terms of children's uh, discovery and exploration and really developing um, projects. Now the creative curriculum calls them studies, I believe, right? Studies. Yes. And, um, and so if you are someone who is really looking at how do I do this, because it can feel very overwhelming in the beginning, I think the creative curriculum does a really nice job of helping develop a structure and a format um, to have an understanding of how to help children uh, think critically and delve deeper in some of the topics that are meaningful to them. Um, one of the things that makes me nuts, and if you come to any of my trainings, you have heard me say, we should not be doing anything about oceans. We should not be doing anything that's not real relevant and meaningful for children. Even snow in the valley, it makes me nuts. Why are you cutting out snowflakes? I mean, I, I, for so many reasons I have 
I, I have issues with that. But it's, I think the creative curriculum really provides that support for teachers when they're first learning how to um, help children uh, really develop projects in the classroom. Yeah, and you hit it right on top of the head. We were, we're talking about, we have to make the learning relevant to the students. So the creative curriculum is designed around these teaching guides or these studies where they're going to be understood by all children, regardless of where they live, whether it's in center of downtown Phoenix or out on the Navajo reservation, it's going to be able to relate. So our topics are more broad. Uh, so for kindergarten, we do an architecture study. Everybody's got buildings around them wherever they're at. We do seed studies. And the seeds, again, are related to plants that children have in their neighborhood, not some random one that's not found in our area. We do a sports study, a percussion instrument study as well. Um, so again, these are things that are all around us that children can relate to, that they have interest in, and they can get deeper understandings of what that topic happens to be. Now, one of the big things about our studies that differs from a lot of the other curriculums out there is a lot of the other curriculums do thematic units. So from Monday morning till Friday night for two, three, four weeks, it's that same topic all day long, all week long, and there's a lot of burnout from students and from teachers. Where ours, it's more strategically interjecting learning opportunities that are tied back to that study topic. So if you're doing the seed study, you might do one or two experiences in a day that relates to seeds, but you're also going to be reading high quality literature books that have to relate with social emotional needs of children. So like the seed study for kindergarten, within it, you find the little red hen. The little red hen doesn't have anything specifically to do with seeds, but it's more that social emotional working together to share the rewards together type of thing. And if we don't work together, then we shouldn't really share the rewards together kind of concept. So it is definitely a different approach. So the burnout on teachers won't be there. Teachers do report that they enjoy teaching more than ever before when they have been implementing the creative curriculum because it's refreshing. They're engaged with the children. They don't have to be an expert on all of the topics. They just have to be an expert on where to find the experts on those topics so that they can bring somebody in that can help add to the learning experience for the students. We actually just got some really impressive data uh, just this past week on one of our pilot schools from Alabama that had implemented the kinder, uh, kindergarten curriculum. And what they looked at is their referrals for kindergarten children the year before the implementation of the pilot. And there was 27 referrals written for kindergartners the year before the pilot. The first year in the pilot, it was down to two referrals. Wow. So right there, the negative behaviors within the children were significantly reduced and they can only attribute it back to being the social emotional curriculum that we happen to offer along with the academic pieces of it. And another really important piece of data that they had shared is that they actually had an increase in attendance by 3% of their students. 3%, I wasn't very super overwhelmed by that. But when you actually talk to administrators in the field, a 3% increase in attendance is actually really a big increase right. in attendance for children. So, and this was all during that very first year of that pilot. There's been great results from it, again, from the teacher retention to student discipline to student retention within the classrooms as well. You know, it aligns with the work that we're doing because, you know, given that creative curriculum is my foundation, um, so much of it aligns with, um, you know, the tool and the uh, curriculum itself. But the thing that we get back more than anything else are those two things that you just mentioned, uh, a decrease in children's behavior, so much so that teachers 
some teachers have become sort of like the classroom where those children go to because the teacher is able really to meet their needs. And then the second one is attendance where I will tell you, it's, it is so difficult for me when I hear that kindergarten age children, these are five-year-old children don't want to go to school. That breaks my heart where they just are crying about going to school in kindergarten. So when children are excited and in my classroom, I, for me, it was like, how do I make that? You know, that when people go to Disneyland for the first time, that experience of, oh my goodness, that's what I wanted my classroom to be like. I wanted my classroom. And it was that where children every day were like, what are we going to do? And are we going to finish this project? Are we going to do? And that kind of experience, I think is what really I learn just our education, just not in first kindergarten through third grade, but beyond should be a place that I want to be, that I want to go, that I, that I can see myself as, as curious, as a lifelong learner and someone who's reflective of those experiences. Yeah. We were just talking about that, increasing the wonderment of children again, having them wonder about the world and be curious and engaged with what's around them. That excitement piece is what we're missing. And teachers. I, I think that, you know, so much of our professional development is blah, blah, blah. But if we really get engaged and just sat in that, that space of curiosity and wonderment, that, you know, we get excited and children will get excited alongside with us. So anyhow, do you have anything else you'd like to share before we sign off? Uh, no, I just really appreciate this opportunity again to have this conversation. This is something that's really important to me. And I'm happy that we're seeing this shift take place. We've got some great leaders within the Department of Education that's really encouraging this type of change. And we just need more people to trust the process and understand that this is what research has identified as being best practice. So why don't we start implementing what research is saying instead of hearing the research and doing something different that we've always been doing. The archaic system of education that we've had in place for so long needs to change because our children have changed and there's a piece that's really missing that we have to start filling back in again. And I really wanted us to come together so that um, folks across the state who are working with you in terms of the assessment tool uh, recognize that these two parts come together and that they're really significant, that we provide professional development, a lessee group, and our consult consultants provide um, free professional development that's supported by Virginia G. Piper Charitable Foundation, and we do work in collaboration with the Department of Education. And Chris works directly with the Department of Education as um, schools are joining to really gain a deeper understanding of how to utilize the tool in a way that is most effective for children. So um, if you're moving in that direction or thinking about it, reach out to us too and let us know um, how we can provide that level of support to you. So thank you very, very much. And um, I am excited about um, actually meeting you because it hasn't been very long since we first met, but I am happy um, that we have such incredible alignment because it gives me faith in um, the shift that is happening in our state. So thank you very much for being with me today. I appreciate it again too. Thank you. Uh, have a good day. Bye. Bye.